Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney and this is the only boxing podcast in the world not to feature an interview with George Cambosis Jr. this past week. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I guess we are the only one uh, that, that is uh, probably accurate. Now, to be clear, uh, we, we chose not to interview. Right. To, to differentiate ourselves from all the other podcasts out there, all the sheep. Uh, th- this was not this was not a case of him saying yes to everyone else and, and no to us. Although right. that would be a perfectly believable scenario if, if that were the case. But uh, yeah, no, no Cambosis here. So if you're sick of hearing from him on every podcast you listen to this week, you're welcome. But full credit to him. You've got to say, you know, we always talk about fighters needing to do what they can to raise their profile and good lord the man hasn't been home since the fight he uh uh since his victory over Teofimo Lopez he was at a fight in Las Vegas on Saturday night that we'll talk about there's a fight on Sunday night that we will talk about as well uh and I think he's still going to be sticking around I think he's going to be at the Vasily Lomachenko's fight uh next Saturday so he's obviously in no hurry to go home for whatever reason you know maybe you know his home life isn't that great but uh either way he's absolutely making the most of it right now yeah he sure is and uh he'll go home eventually I would presume well to fight whoever he decides to fight if nothing else because he is making it very clear that whoever he (laughs) fights is going to be in Australia so all right Coming up on this episode, we've got quite a lot to talk about. We will look at the news that COVID-19 is once again affecting boxing, causing postponements of two big fights in Japan. We will look ahead to next week's Showtime Championship Boxing triple header headlined by Nonita Donaire versus Raymond Caballo. And we're going to interview one of the fighters on that card, a young 140-pound knockout artist, Brandon Lee. But first, to Los Angeles, where on Sunday night, yes, Sunday night, Javante Davis beat Isak Cruz by unanimous decision in the lightweight main event of a Showtime pay-per-view. And Eric, for the first half and a little bit of the fight, it looked to me as if Davis, you know, after Cruz had had a fairly strong first round, Davis seemed to be very much in control. He was kind of letting Cruz come on to him a little bit, even though he's having to work really hard at it. He was firing uh, those uppercuts and uh, straight lefts whenever he could. He looked to be the better boxer. He had the better hand speed. He had the punch selection. But Cruz just kept coming. And then it looks, I thought I saw around round nine or so. I thought I, I made a brief note. Did did uh, Davis just shake his left hand a little mm. bit? And I wasn't sure if I imagined it or not. But I also wrote around that same time, you know what? Davis is winning this fight, but he's beginning to look like he's running out of ideas. Mm-hmm. He can't quite figure out how to keep Cruz off him. Cruz kept coming at him, and it did appear, in fact, that Davis did indeed hurt his hand uh, on Cruz's head. Cruz, full credit to him, uh, gave it everything, just basically kept coming, being the Aesop Cruz that we recognize and have seen so often uh, over the last year or so. Uh, but then I thought Davis, managing, despite being one-handed, to absolutely pull it out with a, uh, a nice bit of one-handed boxing in the final round uh, to make it clear. I scored at 116-112 for Javante Davis, as did one of the judges. The other two scored at 115-113 for Davis, who goes to 26-0 with 24 knockouts. Cruz drops to 22-2-1 with 15 knockouts. First question I've got to ask you before anything else. I think we can all agree. 
This was a way better fight than it would have been if Raleigh Romero had been in there, right? <laughs> yes, that was one of the things that I jotted down, that the fans benefited from there being no Raleigh Romero in this fight. We got to see what happens when a tank faces a pit bull. <laughs> this ah. is kind of what you expect. Although, Gervonta didn't quite fight totally like a tank. He was a little a little slicker uh, and quicker than you think of a tank being, uh, whereas uh, Isak Cruz, pure pit bull in there, I would say. Um, I had it slightly closer than you. I had it with the other two judges, the 115-113 mm-hmm. uh, card for Davis. And I didn't notice the the issue with the hand quite as quickly as you did. I, I didn't spot it till the commentators started talking about it. But it, the, the fight, you're right, that there was a shift Maybe around after the seventh through seven, I had Javante up five to two and starting to feel like, yeah, these are all close competitive rounds, but maybe he's ready to pull away now. Cruz is a handful, but he isn't really going to get any serious business done. And maybe Davis will even step it up and, and land the big punch and stop him as we predicted. And then instead from the eighth round on, it was a pretty close fight. And I thought Cruz got the better of it in several of those yeah. rounds. I gave him three of the last five while agreeing with you that the 12th Javante uh, pulled that out to sort of uh, cinch up the fight. But yeah, the, he had all he could handle from uh, from Isak Cruz here. Uh, this was uh, not an easy match, much uh, tougher than I think he would have uh, gotten from Raleigh Romero. And I think his answer to the question from Jim Gray afterward uh, about his interest in a rematch really said it all. He quickly said, hell yeah. no. <laughs> and uh, I can understand that feeling. He got the win. He deserved the win. I, I yep. understand why Isaac Cruz might have might have thought he deserved the win himself. But uh, uh, but no, Javante uh, earned this one and uh, would be uh, fully justified in not granting uh, Isaac Cruz a rematch. Uh two questions sort of go together even a defeat surely Isak Cruz raised his stock here right I mean there may have well have been people who watch this pay-per-view who haven't seen him um before uh, say blasting out of Diego Magdaleno or looking good on on Showtime Championship Boxing and the flip side of that we hadn't seen Davis taking the distance uh, in a long while despite the fact that it was a deserved victory does his stock drop a little or nah well, so the the first question is the easy one to answer. Absolutely, Isak Cruz's stock goes up uh, in defeat. Uh, I mean, we were pretty high on him and have been for yeah. a while. Uh, we've been watching him, uh, you know, since he blasted out Magdaleno in one round on Showtime. We kind of said, ooh, this is really a guy to watch. But, you know, I, I don't know that we knew that he could do it at this level and particularly that he could go the distance with Gervonta Davis and break that knockout streak that Gervonta had going. So absolutely, his stock goes up. More people know his name now. Uh, we talk all the time about all these four princes or and some <laughs> of the some of the guys who aren't quite princes, but are still top guys in the lightweight division. Cruz deserves a, a shot at another one of those guys sometime soon, I, I would think. So undoubtedly, his stock goes up. Where does... Javante's stock go with this, the fact that he did have to go the distance and it was razor close. I'm sure there are some people out there who scored it a draw, maybe even uh, a few people who found a way to give the fight to Cruz. Does that hurt Javante's stock? Ultimately, I would say it probably moves laterally in terms of the extra exposure he gets of an exciting win and headlighting another pay-per-view balances out a little bit with anyone who might think he's slightly underperformed. But I'll say this, you know, that I am the keeper of a pound for pound list. Mm -hmm. I had him number 10 on my list coming into this. 
I think I might be inclined to squeeze him out of the top 10 for the moment and wait for him to look a little more impressive next time before I squeeze him back in. What what do you think of of his stock? Does it go down at at all for you? Laterally sounds like a very good word to me, like his his move, you know, because through seven, he was looking so good. I don't think it's coincidental that that decline happened around the time that he lost his power hand in that fight. And again, full credit to Isak Cruz, who just kept coming. Uh, We both picked Davis to win and we picked him to win by knockout. He was landing some hellacious punches in those first seven rounds, and Cruz showed absolutely no uh, interest in being knocked out or going anywhere whatsoever. So I would, uh, yeah, maybe down a smidgen, um, but I think that's more because we haven't seen, especially over the last couple of years, Javante has looked so spectacular that he only suffers a little bit, I think, in comparison to himself Mm -hmm. uh, somewhat. I think this is more about Isak Cruz staying in there and having a kind of coming out performance. Sometimes you just got to dig deep and, and get through, uh, you know, injury and, and, and get through these kind of obstacles and still pull out the win. And Javante Davis showed that he can do that. Yeah, and this may be the kind of fight where we reassess the performance later based upon what Isak Cruz does after this. Say he gets in with another top guy. Say he fights a a Teofimo Lopez or a Devin Haney or someone like that next year. And those guys, one of those guys knocks him out. Then we say, Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe Javante's not what we thought he was. If he gives those guys the same kind of hell, maybe upsets one of those guys, then Javante's stock goes up uh, retroactively off this performance. Yep, and once Javante gets back to fighting people taller than him again, which he's, which he's used to doing, you know, maybe he'll be back to the tank that we're used to. Yeah, that was one of those things that you talked about on the preview show of the 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 un, how unusual it would be for Javante to be punching down at someone, and I do think that presented a challenge for him. Uh, it's something you know, Mike Tyson always talked about that that he yeah. kind of liked fighting tall guys. He found it awkward to be in there with someone around his own height or shorter. So there was some some adjusting there for Tank Davis when you're always used to being the shorter guy in the ring. He, For the most part, he made the adjustments and then he had his hand problems. Uh, I think that I think that's clear that that did take away from his performance somewhat. So when you when you add it all together and think about the quality of the opponent, the toughness and determination of the opponent and the hand issues he was dealing with to come out with any kind of a not particularly controversial win, I think is ultimately a positive yeah. for Davis here. I agree. Um, unless there's something more you want to add, should we switch to the undercard? Yeah, um, let's, let's keep it going because this was a, a, a pretty darn good card. I mean, the the Davis Cruz fight was highly entertaining, and really three out of four fights on this card uh, delivered entertainment. I would say. Indeed, and let's actually stick with the two of the three undercard fights that added to that quality and excitement. Uh, if you want to make sure you get your notes in order here, let's go in chronological order for the rest of the pay-per-view, Okay. Um, if you're okay with that. And we will start with the opening bout, featherweight contest. Uh, Eduardo Ramirez uh, scoring the unanimous decision win over Miguel Mariaga, all three judges seeing it, 99 points to 90. Ramirez uh, raising his record to 26, 2 and 3 with 12 stoppages, Mariaga falling to 30 and 5 uh, with 26 losses. Uh, only uh, Mariaga's second loss outside of a title tilt, in fact. Uh, 
lot of punches thrown here and a lot of punches landed. Uh, this was not for you, as you tweeted, if you were a fan of good defense and punches not landing. Uh, Ramirez averaging 76 punches per round. He landed 280 in total, a career high for him and the most uh, by a Mariaga opponent. Um, Mariaga went down in the third round. The way he went down, I thought it was as more as much a slip as it was a punch. Yeah. Uh, just one of those hard punch drops, but irrelevant in the end to, to how it worked out. Look, not a great technical fight. Not much, if indeed anything, in way, uh, by way of angles and fainting or setting up punches. Um, but a huge effort by both men. There were times where I was beginning to feel that it might have been one of those slightly difficult fights and that Mariaga was kind of in every round, but was also clearly losing every round. Mm -hmm. And I thought that Ramirez's punches were landing flush far more than Mariaga's were. And if I were a referee or a ring physician or a cornerman, I would almost be starting to think, I'm feeling a bit awkward about whether I might want to step in and stop it here. But Mariaga, I thought, did enough to deserve to make it to the end. Um, Fun, uh, aggressive, uh, action-packed opener, if not exactly technically brilliant. Yeah, I agree with all that. And uh, I agree with you about the knockdown call that it probably was slightly more slip, even though a punch landed. And most significantly on, with regard to that, I agree with you that it's a good thing it didn't end up mattering. It would have been a real shame if a knockdown call had made the difference in the fight. Uh, and it did look, you know, through three, four, five rounds, like maybe this could be close enough for that knockdown call to make a difference. And then it ended up uh, Ramirez just completely ran away with it from that point so that it so that it was also ultimately irrelevant. But, yeah, neither guy had any defense whatsoever in this fight. And <laughs> that made for great action. Um, it reminded me a little bit at times of the Zapata Baranchik fight just without all the knockdowns, but that sort of <laughs> level of two guys just standing in front of each other and me cringing, watching it on my television set. <laughs> um, yeah, really fun stuff. And, uh, Ramirez fully delivered. And I think Mariaga at age 35 kind of gave all that he had left here. Uh, but it, it just wasn't enough. He's just not able to, uh, really get the job done at, at the world-class level anymore. I'm not even sure if Eduardo Ramirez is at the world-class level, but he's at least on the fringes of it. And I think Mariaga now clearly is a step below that. Indeed. Uh, we followed that with middleweight action and Carlos Adamas scoring a majority decision win over Sergei Derevyanchenko. Uh, scores were 95-95, 96-94 and 97-93. Adamas moves to 21-1 and with 16 knockouts. Derevyanchenko falls to 13-4 and with 10. Um, full credit to Adamas here, showing... A lot of good movement, a lot of good defense, uh, nice upper body movement, moving in and out, using his jab to set up uh, fast power punches. Derevianchenko, despite having that nickname of the technician, I thought was just relying too much on on trying to bull Adamas to the ropes and into the corner. He, he did have his moments. Uh, in round five, he was landing some really heavy leather, and I was thinking that maybe he was going to turn the corner here and it would be mm -hmm. just a matter of time, but... I just didn't think he used his boxing ability enough. Uh, some rounds were unquestionably close, and that was reflected in the scores. Um, but Adamas, I felt, even when Derevianchenko started them well, he always closed the rounds well. Um, you know, I did say 
when we were previewing this that I was tempted to pick Adamas, but I wasn't going to. I said that there would come a point after all these close losses in, in title fights for Derevianchenko where he'd start losing to people who were just that step below the title level. But I didn't think it would happen just yet. Looks like it is happening or is in fact Adamas showing us that he is in fact at that kind of title level. I think it's probably uh, a bit of both that Adamas w- is better than I realized coming into this. And Derevyanchenko has lost just that little bit, that little half a step there. I also think strategically, you have to give Adamas a lot of credit for whoever, whether it was him or his trainers that devised the game plan to come out yep. Southpaw that clearly threw Derevianchenko off. It took him a little while to adjust. Uh, I thought the first two rounds or so, he, he looked really old, and I thought the southpaw stance had a lot to do with it. And Adamas also much quicker, and that was handcuffing Derevianchenko. He just wasn't punching enough in those early rounds. But then, like you, the fifth round, he had this big round, and I'm starting to think, oh, okay, he's gathering momentum now. And he did to an extent, but uh, but but couldn't really keep it up. I think maybe if we were talking about the prime Derevyanchenko of a few years ago, maybe he builds on that momentum as the rounds go on. Uh, nevertheless, he, he pulled pretty close in the fight for me after losing the first four rounds on my card. I ultimately had it 96-94 Adamas. So, so Derevyanchenko did come on, did make a, a solid showing for himself. But um, yeah, I was really impressed with the, the skill and the versatility of Adamas. And the, if anything, I was a little surprised that he didn't go back to Southpaw uh, later in the fight when Derevyanchenko was having some success. I was expecting, well, maybe Adamas switches back to Southpaw here and, and throws Derevyanchenko off again. He, he didn't ultimately do that. Um, so yeah, Outstanding, I would say, upset win for Adamas. Uh, I, w- I was not expecting him to pull this out, even though, as you said, we knew there was a possibility if Derevianchenko slipped. But I, I don't, yeah, I think it was, pr- if, as I'm talking through it, I'm thinking it had more to do with Adamas being better mm-hmm. than we realized than Derevianchenko slipping. And uh, got to give a shout out to Derevianchenko for stealing a page from the Gennady Golovkin playbook after the fight and declaring, I love box. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, halfway through that fight, uh, our buddy Lee Groves tweeted uh, what is going to be this week's tweet of the week. Ah. Uh, through five rounds, it can be said that while Adamas Derevianchenko is being staged at Staples, its spirit is pure Carson. Mm. The violent exchanges would have fit right in with the war grounds, referring, of course, to what is now the Dignity Health Sports Park, but was well known as the Home Depot Center. And as you alluded to early on, I think the main event also fit in with that, as did the, the, the first fight. Different levels of, of talent and skill in those three fights, but absolutely no questioning the action in any of them. The one fight on the card which let us down a little bit uh, was the co-main. Um, Sebastian, the towering Inferno Fundora, remaining undefeated uh, with a unanimous decision win over Sergio Garcia. Uh, 18-0-1 with 12 knockouts now, Fundora. Uh, Garcia drops to 33-1, his first pro defeat. His first defeat of any kind, in fact. He was apparently undefeated as an amateur. Scores were 115-113, 117-111, and 118-110. And I think that reflects the fact that some of these rounds were indeed quite difficult to score. Not because they were necessarily incredibly action-packed, but because it was a little hard to stay interested, to be honest. Yeah. Um this was another fight that I thought was technically quite poor. Uh, both men were throwing 
Neither man seemed to do a very great deal to set up his punches or give himself the greatest possible advantage. It was tougher for Garcia. He came into it at a disadvantage. He's a boxer who was forced to fight simply because he was up against this freak of nature. He did bring it and do what he could, I thought, Garcia. But he just simply wasn't able to make his way past Fandora's long arms. Um, the crowd seemed unenthused, certainly didn't like the decision. I, I do feel that a lot of the blame for the, how this fight turned out has to fall on Fandora. You know, a lot of the time, even when he wins and even when he's effective, he has this kind of almost diffident looking way of fighting. He appears to put very little weight behind his punches and... I felt afterwards, honestly, if he'd fought almost any other way, if he'd just boxed and used his freakish dimensions, or if when fighting in close, he dug his toes into the canvas and talked his punches more, it would have been more interesting. Um, as it was in another tweet, our buddy David Greisman, with one of his famous Greisman puns, simply Uh-oh. posted, after this fight, he's just going to be Sebastian Dora. <laughs> All right. Not not bad, Greisman. Not bad. Not, not bad. Uh, so I'm not sure that either man really took advantage. Like, to be a co-main on a pay-per-view, that's mm. a fantastic spot to be in. And you do want to take advantage of that. And I thought that Abner Maris talked about this quite a bit, and I agreed with him. Not sure either man really took advantage of that positioning. Do you? No, I mean, certainly not. Uh, I mean, Fundora will continue to get opportunities and get attention. He's undefeated and he's so bizarre and unique. But (laughs) this fight did not provide any answers to the question that I have about him of, you know, is this guy a real contender or is he a novelty act? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what he's going to go down as as and, and how high his ceiling can be. He just makes tough matchups with so many different guys. So many different styles don't mesh well with his. Some do. And sometimes he steps up and delivers a spectacular knockout. And you like to see that. But Garcia was a little too good, a little too awkward himself. And the result was just not fun at all to watch uh cost yeah. me a little bit of money half a pizza uh <laughs> cost me points in the picks competition as uh, i imagine you'll be updating yep. the scores there momentarily so all around a lose 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 for me and uh, i don't think uh, we need to spend any more time uh, dwelling <laughs> on this particular matchup indeed uh let's go to the scores on the picks contest and eric you and i have both had better nights it must be said in terms of <laughs> scoring um Let's go through this. Uh, for the first fight, uh, Ramirez Mariaga, you got one point. Uh, you picked Ramirez, but you picked him by KO. Right. But you at least get a point there. I picked Mariaga, so I got zero. After two fights, I was still stuck on zero. Uh, you at least were only on one, as we had both picked Derevianchenko to win by unanimous decision. Uh, you did pick Garcia to get a dis- majority decision win over Fundora. I picked Fundora by unanimous decision, so I got three points there. Yes. Yay. And we each got just the one point for the main event. We did pick Javante Davis, but we both picked him to win by knockout. I started the night with a 75-72 lead. I ended it with a 79-74 lead. Mm. It wasn't our greatest night. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> yeah, except I'll just uh, note that I guess the, the clock is ticking on me five points down and we are in December now. So uh, I'm going to I can't uh, wait much longer to make my move if I'm going to make it, I suppose. I might actually have you where I want you. <laughs> you, you might. You just might. 
We'll know for sure in a couple more weeks. We will. Um, all right. So that was the whole uh, Davis Cruz pay-per-view card. Of course, Davis Cruz wasn't the only major lightweight clash of the weekend. On Saturday in Las Vegas, Devin Haney scored a unanimous decision win over Jojo Diaz by scores of 117-111 twice and 116-112 in a fight that was more entertaining than the somewhat one-sided scores would suggest. With the win, Haney moves to 27-0, 15 KOs, while Diaz falls to 32-2-1, also with 15 KOs. Kieran, what were the keys to Haney getting the job done, and how much does his stock rise as a result of this victory? Yeah, the main key was that Haney used his advantages right in reach and in speed. He just constantly kept Diaz on the back foot. He knew that Diaz had wanted to try and come inside and work in close, and he just wouldn't give him the chance. Um, you know, Haney's jab was the most important punch of the, of the night, but very close second was the straight right hand to the body. Um, that was really effective in not only keeping Diaz on the defensive, but just forcing him back more than just right hands off, off the guard or even off his head would have done. What I liked about what Haney did was that he showed it's possible to have a jab heavy offense and, and still be fun to watch, right? Like he was jabbing, he was jabbing off the front foot. He was the one making the fight. Um, you could argue that Diaz should have shown more invention, more variety, or tried to figure out other ways to get inside, tried to let his hands go more. It was perhaps a little bit disappointing that way, but I think credit's due to Haney for forcing him into his shell for so much of his of the fight. I, I think Haney's stock improves, mm-hmm. um, especially because he was on a run of a couple of performances that were quite lackluster, even as they resulted in wide wins. And here he scored a good win against a very good opponent and and looked good doing it. And yet, at the same time, there was still just a hint of vulnerability there. Like Diaz did break through in round four, and he did break through in round seven, he did break through in round 12. And while it's not sure that it ever felt that he was about to knock Haney out or anything, I did think that he landed enough left hands, especially flush, that any potential opponent might look at that and feel that he has a key to victory. So it was a win, an entertaining outing, and enough vulnerability to entice future opponents. So I'm not actually sure that the night could have gone much better for David Haney, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I see some parallels here in his performance with the Javante Davis win over Cruz that we just talked about in in that the the opponent made things uh, difficult in certain ways. And so I wasn't quite wowed by Haney, but, you know, when you consider the opposition, I think it's hard to wow against Jojo Diaz. It takes all you have to grind out a hard-fought win. And if you win eight to four or so, that's about the best anyone has done against him and maybe about the best anyone can do against him. Um, so I'm still not sure exactly what we have in Haney, whether he's yeah, a pound for pound talent or a level below that. But I certainly do think his stock goes up off of this, just not exponentially. Yep, I agree with all of that. All right, time now to look forward as the live boxing continues on Showtime this Saturday, December 11th with the Showtime Championship Boxing Triple Header from the aforementioned Dignity Health Sports Center in Carson, California. Uh, the main event features future Hall of Famer Nito Donaire taking on fellow Filipino Raymond Gabayo in a bantamweight contest. The co-main sees Kutradillo Abdukakarov square off against Cody Crowley in a welterweight contest. And our guest this week opens up Saturday's broadcast in a 140-pound contest against 16 1-1 Juan Raldez. He has been blasting through his opposition, compiling a record of 23-0 with 21 KOs, and he's on a 14-fight knockout streak, making his second appearance on the podcast. 
It is, of course, Brandon Lee. Brandon, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, much appreciated, and uh, looking forward to uh, fight night. Yeah, we are too. Uh, and so when we last spoke to you uh, on the podcast, it was uh, back in mid-March. You were just coming off a very impressive third-round knockout of Samuel Tia. Up to that point, you'd been fighting pretty much every couple of months, uh, with the exception of a, a stretch in 2020 when nobody was fighting due to COVID. Um, but since that fight, you've only had an additional one minute and 40 seconds in the ring, which is how long it took you to dispatch Ezequiel Victor Fernandez in August. Is it safe to say that you're champing at the bit to get back in the ring on December 11th? Um, I'm looking forward to this fight. I'm looking forward to going in there and give Showtime a show, give the fans and viewers a show. Um, unfortunately i can't control how long we fight uh we might go five seconds we might go the whole 10 rounds 12 rounds uh all depending all depending on what i see and how i'm feeling today right but in terms of the weight between fights which i know usually you like to make get back in there as soon as you can uh from one fight to the next do you do you get restless at all waiting four or five months between fights like you have this year um no not at all because you know i i've been i've been in the gym i've been working and uh I feel like from time to time, your body needs rest. So I feel like my man is pushing me um, perfectly. Um, so I was surprised to see that the that Fernandez fight was the first time in your pro career you'd actually fought in your native Southern California. And, and how was that experience for you? And how much are you looking forward to fighting again in front of your home crowd on the 11th? It was a great experience because, you know, I have my family, my friends there, my sponsors. And as soon as I saw everyone, my blood started pumping, my adrenaline started pumping, and I was ready to go. And um, I feel like December 11th is going to be even a bigger event now that I had uh, I, I announced it maybe three weeks ago. So it's going to be a good four-month um, campaign of me announcing my fight. So I feel like a lot of people are going to show up and support. And you're at, you know, and you're on the, the main TV broadcast this time, so there'll be more crowd actually in the arena. The atmosphere should be pretty good for you. 100%, I agree, yep. So uh, when you fought uh, Taya, uh, that felt like it was a, a step up in competition for you. Uh, your upcoming opponent, Juan Geraldez, feels like another one. Um, e even though he hasn't won since 2019, he has been in against very solid opposition recently in the form of Argenis Mendez and Regis Progre. Do you feel that this is a good opportunity to measure yourself against that caliber of fighter? Um, You know, to be honest, I... I spar with world champions. I spar with former world champions. I'm sparring with Olympians. So as far as uh, trying to see where I, where I am, I know where I'm at. I know that I'm talented enough to hang in there with the big dogs. Um, I feel like this is just another opportunity to showcase my skills and go in there and do what I do. Okay. Well, does the fact that progress stopped him in three rounds, is there any motivation to do something that compares favorably with the KO3? I know you said earlier that, you know, if it's a KO1 or if it goes the whole distance, uh, you're, you're happy either way. Uh, but is there motivation to maybe beat what progress did? No, not at all. I'm not looking at other people's plate. Um, styles make the fight. So, um, you know, progress and I, have, we have different styles. Right. You know, talking of styles, when, when you look at Araldez, what do you feel you have to be most cautious of? What are his strengths and, and what kind of a fight do you expect from him? I see that his strengths are, um, he is a decent boxer. He's signed to the money team, so we know that he's a well-rounded well fighter. Um, he's a decent boxer, decent speed. Uh, the power, I think, he, I'm not too sure how many knockouts he has. Um, 
I, I think his overall best attribute is that he's a, he's a decent boxer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's unusual to say that uh, a fight that went uh, into the third round uh, is a long fight that gives us a good long look at somebody. But in, in your case, in the Tia win, uh, because he lasted until the third round relative to a lot of your other fights, it, it actually uh, did give us an opportunity to see more of you and an opportunity for you to showcase other aspects of your game besides just the knockout power. Um, in particular, you showed that when you need to use it, you have a really nice jab. Um, is there mm-hmm. ever is there ever any frustration that you haven't gotten much opportunity to use all the different elements in your arsenal and, and then sort of see what works and what doesn't in a real fight? No, not at all. Because at the end of the day, it's my it's my father and my little secret. Um, when it's time <laughs> to pull it out, we can pull it out. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, are there any concerns? I mean, you know what what you can do in the gym, but is there any concern that um, when you're up against a, a top level opponent uh, that you're going to have to use something you haven't had an opportunity to work on, on on the way up because you do keep knocking these guys out? Or, or for you, is it just the work you're getting in the gym is, is all you need to be ready for those fights? It's not a concern at all. Um, and yeah, the work I'm getting in the gym, I mean, it's not like I'm sparring three rounds, you know, I'm sparring 12 rounds, 15 rounds. So, of course, I'm using my jab, I'm using my right hand, I'm using my defense, and the whole well-rounded, uh, everything that I need to do to become a world champion, you know, I'm, I'm practicing that daily. So, um, even though that, that sometimes I don't get the chance to do that in a, a real fight, I, you know, I'm still practicing it daily. But it is your knockout power that gets people paying attention, and knockout punches do tend to gain a lot more attention than, than pure boxers. And it's very clear that you're a, a, a natural knockout puncher at this stage. What is the source of that power, do you think? Is it down to specifically your technique, uh, your natural strength? Is it a combination of both? Because not everybody is able to do what you're able to do there. To be honest, I'm, I'm blessed. Uh, <laughs> you're blessed with speed, you're blessed with power. Um, maybe you could generate a little bit more speed with a little bit of training. But if you're if you're not a fast puncher, you, you can't do much about that. And uh, same thing with power. I mean, you, you can have a big muscle guy, and and if he does not throw a correct punch or t- twist his body, pivot his feet, and if he just doesn't have power, he won't hit hard. So you know, I'm just blessed to have decent speed and um, great power. That's what people keep telling me. <laughs> certainly natural the natural uh gifts are are a part of it but there's also a lot of uh what you work on what, what you train on and and how you get there and um your dad ha- has trained you from the beginning and, and he built you up step by step um which led to some interesting differences between your left and right arms um for those listeners who don't know about this can you can you explain what happened with the way that your arms developed uh, yeah so my left arm, my left bicep is way bigger, probably like triple the size, double the size than my right bicep. And um, I think that is because when I first started to learn how to box, my father would tie me up. He would tie me up, tie my right arm to my body so I could only use my jab. So for about a good, man, I don't know how long, maybe like six months, four months, all I did was throw a jab, throw a jab, throw a jab, throw a left hook, throw a left hook, throw a left uppercut, jab body. Um so maybe that's why my left arm is so much bigger than my right. <laughs> that's crazy. And and uh, you you can let your dad know we won't uh, take a clip out of context where where you're saying when I was a kid my dad would tie me up. We're not going to take that out of context and and use that against him. Yeah. So since we last spoke, 
Josh Taylor has really established himself now as the, as the undisputed king of, of the 140-pound division. I know you're not trying to rush your progress, but how far away do you think you are now from stepping in with the Josh Taylors and, and that, those kind of guys? Those type of guys? Um, let me see. I think I would like to get in, get in the ring with those type of guys um, the end of 2022. I'll be... 23 years old i'll be i'll be what 23 and a half years old so i feel like you know they say as soon as you hit 23 to 25 is when you, you when you're full grown man you get your man strength you wise up um you mature but i feel like like at the end of 2022 would be a perfect time I can imagine there's a lot of people in the 140-pound division who are hearing Brandon Lee saying he doesn't yet quite have his man strength <laughs> and are probably moving up a couple of weight classes right now you know, that's what I'm, that's what I tell myself too. Inspiring when I'm dropping guys with 14 ounce gloves. I'm like, damn, imagine if I hit them with the eight ounce gloves. Oh. <laughs> well, I have to say, Brandon, I'm, I'm, uh, pretty much exactly double your age and uh, I'm I'm waiting for my man strength to come in any day now. <laughs> That's right. Just keep working on it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, Brandon, look, thank you so much. We really appreciate you putting some time aside to talk to us. Uh, I know it's a busy time for you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, so best of luck on uh, December 11th. And we really look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, tune in December 11th, 24.0 coming soon. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. All right. Our thanks again to Brandon. Always a great guest. Um, I, I'd love to have him on again sometime when it isn't right before a fight or right after a fight and, and we can dig a little deeper. Uh, or or I, I bet he'd be a great Radio Row guy, uh, which is, of course, something. Yes, he would. Yeah. Yes. And that's something we're optimistic we'll get back to doing in 2022, hopefully. Knock wood, fingers crossed, etc. Um, anyway, let's move on now to previewing the card on which you'll be appearing this Saturday. The main event features the return of one of the most popular people in boxing, Nonito Tenere, whom we most recently saw burnishing his already pretty much ironclad Hall of Fame credentials with a tremendous fourth-round knockout of Nordin Ubali. The 39-year-old Donaire is 41-6 with 27 KOs, and he is taking on Raymart Gabayo, 14 years his junior, with a record of 24-0, 20 knockouts, and his most recent fight was also on Showtime a controversial split decision win over Emmanuel Rodriguez 12 months ago. Kieran, Donaire had at one point been slated to face John Riel Casimero. Then there were some rumors about him taking a rematch against Noah Inouye. Instead, we have Gabayo. For those who haven't seen him, how good of an alternative is Gabayo? What kind of threat does he pose to Donaire? And uh, make your official pick. How do you see the fight going? So... Theoretically, on paper, he's a perfectly solid alternative. Um, he's undefeated, as you mentioned. He's got a good high KO percentage. Um, and officially, he overcame a very good opponent in Rodriguez to earn himself this opportunity. Um, the problem is that he didn't actually beat Rodriguez. <laughs> um, right. You called it a controversial uh, decision. That's putting it mildly. Um, <laughs> Steve Farhood scored that fight 118-110 for Rodriguez. Um, you scored it 117-111, yep. and uh, you said in our post-fight podcast, and I quote, there was no way in hell Gabayo won seven or eight <laughs> rounds of that fight. Um, uh, but that's how John McKay and Don Trella saw it. Um, Rodriguez basically outboxed Gabayo in that fight, and Gabayo just simply didn't appear to know what to do with him. Um, if there was any way in which it could legitimately be considered somewhat close, uh, that's because Rodriguez didn't you know, really impose himself at any point, um, box well, but cautiously. But look, on the basis of that outing, um, which was Gabayo's sort of step up in class, 
he doesn't seem to belong anywhere near the same ring as Danita Donaire. I suspect he's going to be outclassed here. That said, styles do make fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and Donaire is not going to produce the kind of pure boxing performance that Rodriguez did um, that so befuddled Gabayo. So, ironically, Gabayo may actually be somewhat more effective in spots with his offense than he was against Rodriguez, simply because Donaire by the nature of the fighter that he is, is going to be there to be hit somewhat more than Rodriguez was. Conversely, he's obviously going to take the fight to Caballo far more than Rodriguez. He's not going to let him off the hook in any way, keep him around the same way that Rodriguez did. Uh, and I fully expect him to inflict the kind of damage that Rodriguez was either unable or unwilling to. Ultimately, once this fight gets settled... I, I expect it to be one-way traffic. Look, I think Caballo could end up taking some real damage here as Donaire opens up. I, I just don't think he's in Onito's league. Uh, and I expect Donaire, you know, after some interesting uh, exchanges and maybe, uh, you know, a couple of close rounds early on, I expect Nonito to break through and win by knockout in round eight. Okay. Uh, we are such a cliche factory here. Uh, you you said uh, you mentioned styles make fights, and that was what I was going to lead with, is that uh, this is going to put the whole styles make fights cliche to the <laughs> test because Donaire looked great against Ubali and Caballo looked like crap against Rodriguez, but Caballo fights nothing like Ubali and Donaire fights nothing like Rodriguez. So it, it is entirely possible this could be a toss-up fight, even though I don't think much of the Caballo I saw against Rodriguez. I think the goal for Donaire should be to fight in a style that doesn't allow Gabayo to be a different Gabayo than the one we saw. Uh, Donaire is versatile. He can do all different things. He could be a boxer, a puncher, a counterpuncher. Gabayo, from what I can tell, is mostly just a puncher. Uh, he's not hard to outbox. He wants to get inside and trade punches. And at least when facing weaker opposition, he's shown he can really pop. So... If Donaire tries to box from the outside, he should be able to make this easy. Uh, Gabayo likes to squat low a lot. If I'm Donaire, I'm staying on my toes and finding angles when he does that. Just box, box, box until you hurt Gabayo and then pounce. Um, Gabayo got wobbled a few times by Rodriguez, who isn't a huge puncher, which makes me think Gabayo doesn't have much of a chin. Uh, But he was fortunate that Rodriguez never tried for the knockout, never opened up when Gabayo was hurt. That allowed Gabayo to survive and ultimately win a decision that I still can't fathom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do not see Donaire, one of the great natural punchers and finishers of his era, letting him off the hook that way. Uh, I think you can sense that I am building toward a Donaire pick just like you did. But there are question marks. You know, what if Donaire hits the wall? Uh, we thought he was hitting it seven years yeah. ago when Nicholas Walters knocked him out, but he regrouped. He looks like he's still... of what he was in his prime. Um, But that could theoretically end at any moment, right? Um, And Gabayo might have the power to get to him. So I don't think this is like a totally open and shut case, but I do have to pick Donaire. He has the experience, the versatility, the power. And I think when he hurts Gabayo, he finishes Gabayo. Nonito Donaire by a very different pick from yours, KO7 as he sets himself up for one last really big fight, I think, next year before he turns 40 later in the year. Yeah. All right. Uh, The co-main event is a welterweight attraction featuring two unbeaten prospects slash contenders. In one corner, we have Uzbekistan's Kutratilo Abdukakarov, who is 18-0 with 10 KOs. And his last two fights were a technical decision win over Luis Colazzo and an eighth-round stoppage of Javier Flores. His opponent, Cody Crowley, has a very similar record. He's 19-0 with 9 KOs. But without looking 
at the two guys without looking at tape of them, without knowing anything about them. You look at their record and you look at the level of opposition. I wonder if this isn't ostensibly a meeting of fighters who seem to be in very similar places in their careers, but it's a meeting that appears you just go by quality of opposition, perhaps at this point, to have a pretty clear A side in the form of Abdu Kakarov. Do you think that's a fair assessment and what is your pick? Yes and no. I think Abdu Kakarov is indeed meant to be the A side, the guy who promoters assume is going places and, and Crowley is meant to be the opponent. But that doesn't mean this won't be a competitive fight. Um, I happen to think the talent gulf isn't that huge based yeah. on what I've seen. But yeah, just looking up, honestly, where each man is from, you can reach instant conclusions about which one probably has the higher upside. Uh, Abdu Kakarov is from Uzbekistan, where he was a four-time national amateur champion. Crowley is from Ontario, Canada, which, nothing against Ontario. Apologies to our many Canadian listeners, but, uh, you know, Ontario tends not to be a boxing hotbed. So you can, you can jump to some conclusions just based on that. Uh, Abdu Kakarov is, in fact, rated eighth in the world at welterweight by uh, TBRB, while Crowley is unrated. And Abdukakarov has faced the better opposition, but he still hasn't faced great opposition, and Crowley hasn't faced awful opposition. You haven't heard of any of Crowley's opponents, but some of them have good records, 16-1, uh, 14-1, 25-2-3. Not terrible. Uh, Abdukakarov, his best wins are against a fading Colazzo, Dmitry Mikalenko, nobody all that exceptional. Uh, one advantage for Crowley, he's fought as high as 159 pounds. He, he's a bigger boxer. Also, he's a southpaw. Uh, one disadvantage, he hasn't fought in 15 months. Uh, and he has really slow hands. Uh, you, you mentioned Boy, watching, he does. Yeah, you mentioned watching tape. Uh, apparently, it's still 1989 in your mind. I didn't watch tape. <laughs> I watched YouTube. Uh, but yeah, that's what stood out. There is nothing quick twitch about this guy at all. But he's tough. He can fight inside, or he can do a little of that southpaw boxing thing. He's the B-side, but he's not a no-hope B-side. But, uh, you know, Abdukakarov's certainly a sharper puncher, and he's a decent finisher. Although, I don't think he'll get the finish here. I think Crowley is tough enough to last the distance. My pick is Abdukakarov by unanimous decision. How about you? Yeah, it's an interesting clash of styles, isn't it? Uh, um, you know, Crowley, he's, he looks like he's quite well-schooled. Um, you know, he's been hanging around the Mayweather gym. He, apparently he sparred with, with Floyd for uh, Manny and uh, McGregor. Um, and, you know, maybe he learned some stuff there. He, he's got some decent ring generalship. He, his footwork's not too bad. Cuts off the ring well. Um, yeah, it's weird. He has this combination of having a good work rate, yet very slow punches at the same time. It's it sort of, you expect to have... You know, uh, if you've got a really good work rate, you expect to have really good fast hands. But he just it's amazing. He's just he sort of comes at you and keeps coming at you without ever getting into fifth gear. He sort of finds third gear and then stays there, but just yeah. keeps at it, um, you know, and, and that's been effective for him. Um, you know, he, he's good at keeping his opponent in front of him. Like I said, I think he's quite good with his footwork. I, I like the way he cuts off the ring. The problem for that is Abdu Kakarov, someone who's actually pretty happy to stand in front of you. Um, his style's very different from Crowley's, uh, far more open, far more willing to take one to give one, much more exciting to watch, seems to have a greater um, a variety of punch output. Um, it is going to be interesting to see who is able to impose whose style the problem is, I think, that 
what suits Crowley appears to suit Crowley is going to suit Abdu Kakarov as well, and I think that that's going to work to Abdu Kakarov's advantage. It could actually be an interesting back and forth. I, I don't know that I see either man having long stretches of complete dominance, but I yeah I'm with you. I think Abdu Kakarov's sharper punching is going to carry the day. He's going to win by far the bulk of the rounds, but. I'm with you. I actually don't think he's going to stop him. I also have Abdu Kakarov winning this by a unanimous decision. Okay. Uh, and opening up the broadcast is our friend Brandon Lee in his 140-pound matchup with Juan Araldez. Brandon just told us he doesn't care if a fight lasts five seconds or the full distance. Kieran, which one will it be closer to? It won't be five seconds, but it will be closer to five seconds than <laughs> ten rounds. Yeah. Um, Look, Araldes has been in with some solid opposition, but he hasn't beaten that solid opposition. He feels vulnerable to me here. Like, I do think this is a legitimate step up. And I do think this is a legitimate opponent. And, and you know, not very long ago, we were wondering if, you know, are they taking Brandon, are they moving Brandon along a little bit too slow? Uh, but actually, I think they've been getting it just right. Um, you know, just gradually cranking up the theoretical level of resistance. Um, and, and this does feel like, on paper, it's another good step up, but I think it's going to take Brandon a little bit longer to find Araldez and to deal with him than it's taken him with some of his other uh, opponents so far. I think we might actually see Brandon Lee stretched beyond the fourth round for the first time in his career, but not much beyond the fourth round. I could see him actually using his jab to set up Araldez quite well. I think Araldez is going to feel the power of Brandon's punches several times. I feel like it could be one of those fights where Brandon clearly hurts Araldez a couple of times. Uh, Araldes is able to get out of it the first time, the second time, the third time he cracks him, it's going to be all over. He's going to have him badly hurt toward the end of the fourth round, but he's going to finish him off early in the fifth. All right. Um, yeah, I've said a time or two now in past Brandon Lee fights that I think he's stepping up, uh, particularly with Samuel Tia. I, I, I thought there was a chance he'd at least get dragged into the middle rounds in that one. And it keeps not happening. Uh, Araldez is at least as good and as dangerous as anyone Brandon has fought yet. But that three-round loss to Regis Progray, that yep. that really stands out. It doesn't bode well. Um, I mean, one punch can happen to anyone, but I didn't like the way he reacted. He wasn't defending himself well after he got up. He looks to me like someone Brandon Lee will hurt and erase. Uh, Lee, you mentioned he's never gone past the fourth. He hasn't even gone past the third round in three and a half years. Um, and I don't see that particular streak ending here. Uh, even though he told us he isn't measuring himself against Progray, come on, in the back of his mind, he'll be thinking about it a little. I think he equals Progray's result and stops Araldez in the third round. All righty. Um, that Donaire Gabayo Showtime triple header isn't the only action on tap this coming weekend. Uh, Saturday, December 11th is a busy day across the boxing world, with the most notable other fight being the one at Madison Square Garden on ESPN, Vasily Lomachenko taking on Richard Comey. Since losing his lightweight championship to Teofimo Lopez, Lomachenko has been on a mission to beat former Lopez foes more impressively than Lopez did. Uh, he managed that last time out, thrashing Masayoshi Nakatani, who took Lopez the distance. Uh, Lomachenko stopped him in nine. Now he'll be aiming to do the same against Comey. It won't be easy, given how long Comey lasted yep. against Teofimo, but any chance the former pound-for-pound -pound king upstages Lopez against Comey? Well, yeah, to follow on from what you point, he, he, he almost certainly won't produce a quicker win. Um, you know, Lopez stops Comey in two, and it was probably 
I think the most impressive performance of his career up until Lomachenko. Um, and Lomachenko is just not a quick knockout kind of guy, especially at lightweight. Uh, and Comey is a far better fighter than having a KO by two on his record would suggest. Uh, look, I don't think Comey's going to have enough to upset Lomachenko here. Um, but he is plenty talented enough and strong enough to give Loma a heck of a fight, uh, particularly over the first half of the contest until Loma gets his timing fully down. Um, a full credit to Lomachenko, though. He's clearly and unsurprisingly incredibly confident in himself. He could have marked a bit of time after that Lopez loss, uh, getting a couple of comparatively easy wins and then putting himself back into a position uh, uh, to get another crack at, at his title. But he wants to very specifically not only test himself, but test himself against Teofimo Lopez. Uh, I'm curious to see if Lomachenko does get past Comey, and I think he will. Uh, this could actually even go the distance. Uh, I'm curious to see what he'll do next and what those whom he could fight will want to do next. For all the talk of the Four Princes, which is obviously now sort of in a little bit of a mess following <laughs> yeah. last week, Lamachenko hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, you know, Cambosis has been talking a lot about Haney and Davis, but he has also uh, mentioned Lamachenko. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if no matter what you know, these other guys have done, Bob Aram's able to make Vasily Lomachenko the guy to have the next crack at George Cambosis hmm. uh, and to get that lightweight title back. But I do expect him to get past Richard Comey in a surprisingly tough fight, I think, at least for the first half of that bout. Okay. All right. Meanwhile, there are plenty of other fights around the world coming up. Uh, in Liverpool, England, Conor Benn takes on Chris Algieri in a welterweight battle on zone. Katie Taylor defends her lightweight championship against Feruza Sharapova in the co-main. Light heavyweight Dmitry Bivol takes on Umar Salomov over 12 rounds in Ekaterinburg, Russia. And in Dubai, there's a nice little guy triple header. Sonny Edwards versus Jason Mama in a flyweight contest. Aforementioned bantamweight John Real Casemiro takes on Paul Butler, while Donny Nietes meets Norbelto Jimenez in a junior bantamweight bout. Lots to choose from there, Eric. Well, anything leap out at you? Uh, so some of these we talked about when they were signed, some we haven't talked about at all. None of it is drop everything and watch this live, uh, but none of it is bad either. I'm not sure if that Dubai card will be streaming anywhere, so we might have to wait for YouTube for that, uh, but uh, it's good to see Dani Nietes getting active again, at least. Um, Bivol Salamov, I think I said just a week or two ago that because of Bivol's recent run of boringness, I would wait to read the result before watching that, and I'm sticking to that plan. <laughs> the DAZN card, which uh, conveniently will take place in the afternoon, our time, that one has my attention more. Uh, Algeria is a good test for Ben. Even at age 37, yep. I think it would be a statement if Ben knocks him out, since Errol Spence remains the only fighter to do that. And Katie Taylor is never in a bad fight, though I will lose my hardcore credentials now by saying I've never seen Feruza Sharapova Indeed. fight. Um, but she has a good record. Uh, 14 straight wins since losing her pro debut. But her last two fights were six rounders. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if we see the rare Katie Taylor KO win here just based on Sharapova's resume. Nice. All right, time for the news. And unfortunately, our main event is a return to a story that has dominated our thoughts and lives for about 20 or 21 months now. Two fights in Japan, the Gennady golovkin Ryoto Murata middleweight clash on December 29th and the junior bantamweight battle between Kasuto Aoka and Jerwin Ankahas on New Year's Eve have been postponed as a result of concerns over the spread of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Kieran, 
we are closing in on two years now of COVID, and every time it feels as if we're about to turn a corner, we run right into a new obstacle. Any thoughts on what this new development may mean for boxing and for us all, and if we should brace ourselves for more cancellations? You know, when the anti-vax evangelists say, if vaccines are so effective, why do you care if we're vaccinated or not? This is one of the principal reasons, because the longer that the virus is able to circulate and transmit freely among a large pool of the population, the greater the likelihood we're going to get a variant that's much more easily transmissible, or if we're especially screwed, resistant to vaccines. Uh, We still don't know how vaccine resistant the Omicron variant is, or if it is at all. Uh, or how much more easily transmissible it is. There's some, the early indications are that if you've had COVID, you might be more susceptible to getting it again from the Omicron variant than from any of the others, but it's still all very unclear. The good thing about all of this is we're seeing after all this time, people are in a position and much more receptive to implementing these kind of proactive responses, which is what we're seeing here in Japan. And hopefully, this will just prove to be precautionary right. rather than necessary. It makes total sense for the promoters to do this. Um, the variant's new. It's going to take a little while for uh, epidemiologists to figure out exactly what the significance of it is. If they pushed ahead with the fights only to find out like in a couple of months that, or a couple of weeks rather, that, oh, here we go, we are getting another wave, um, it's too late for them to really adjust and do anything uh, about it. This gives them time to hit the pause button, halt fights and accommodations, uh, you know, give fans who wanted to be in attendance ample warning, assess the situation before deciding what to do next. I, I, I'm kind of hopeful. I don't know why, but I just have a suspicion that we may find that while Omicron is perhaps more contagious than Delta, it's not like a whole new deal that's right. that's going to send us spiraling off into, into yet another wave. But that might also be wishful thinking at this point. Um, but it does underline that balancing act, you know, that, yes, we, the governments and the United States and other places face. Yes, we want to make sure that all our citizens are vaccinated, but we also need to get vaccines to other countries um, and, and prevent these variants from, from starting anywhere else. But it was good to see boxing, I think, taking this sort of early response and also particularly Japan, where they've been struggling with it lately. I'm kind of hopeful that. As vaccines, can, as people continue to get vaccinated, as we continue to learn more about this, we might still be getting like these blips, um, these causes for concern. But hopefully we're not going to go through a situation like we went through in 2020 in terms of everything having to shut down. I think we're getting closer to a, fa- a stage of dealing with and living with the virus um, than we were a couple of years ago, as long as everybody <laughs> takes the necessary measures and gets themselves vaccinated. And if you're vaccinated, get boosted. You just, you recently were, I'm about to be. Um, We're all in this together. This is only going to work if we all make the necessary efforts. Yeah, I mean, I uh, echo everything that you said there. I mean, however bad Omicron turns out to be, and as you said, we don't know yet. We have some suspicions of that it might be highly transmissible, but probably not any more deadly or not any more likely to evade the vaccines, but we don't really know yet. However bad it turns out to be, a lot of people will take extra precautions to avoid getting it and prevent the spread, and a lot of people will take zero precautions. Um, (laughs) The good news in terms of fights getting canceled, 
is that we as a society have a way better idea of how to handle this virus yeah. than we did in March 2020, and we have way better tools to handle it. Uh, vaccines, even pills to limit the effects if you get yeah. COVID, a clear understanding of how COVID spreads, none of which we had in March 2020, yeah. and, and two of the three we didn't really have at all in 2020. So um, I, I don't see lots of stuff in America shutting down again. I would be surprised if U.S. fight cards get canceled. We might see more venues requiring vaccination to attend those fights. Um, yep. We might not have international travel bringing boxers in. Uh, but unless this variant is way worse than the experts seem to think at this point, I don't really see the U.S. following Japan's lead and postponing sporting events. Um, but also, if you are listening to this podcast and you are unvaccinated, Stop being a baby. Stop being afraid of a little jab. <laughs> Stop being part of the problem. Do this one really easy, totally free thing to help the pandemic end sooner rather than later. Indeed. We haven't done a vaccine rant in a, in a few months. So that, it felt good. Which is a good sign, I feel, that maybe, you know, it feels as if everything's been relatively under control. But still, vaccine rates in this country are just embarrassingly yep. low still. So Indeed. anyway, um, our co main event in the news is far less serious and dispiriting. Uh, Amir Khan and Kelbrook have finally agreed to meet on February 19th in Manchester. Several years later, it should be said, than would have been ideal. I think probably the perfect moment for this fight would have been in 2016 before Khan was flattened by Canelo and Brook was broken by Triple yeah. G. Uh, the last time we saw Brook in the ring was a little over a year ago when he was taken out in four rounds by Terence Crawford. Khan also lost inside the distance to Crawford uh, in 2019 and since has just one win against Billy Dibb. Eric, has this clash marinated beyond the point of it being of any interest at all? Or is there still a reason to look forward to this? Yeah, I'm still interested. I, I still think it could be an exciting and competitive fight and I think it could draw a big crowd. Does it matter anymore? No. You know, the, the winner doesn't move on to a meaningful fight. He might move on to a payday of some sort, but Khan or Brooke, neither of them is going to be viewed as a serious contender again after winning this fight. I'm trying to think of a good parallel because um, this isn't Mayweather-Pacquiao, which, yes, also marinated for about five years, but they were still arguably the two best fighters in the world when it happened. And it's not quite like Hopkins-Jones 2, which mm. I felt violently opposed to by the time it happened because Roy had just gotten iced in one round by Danny Green. This is in between those two extremes. Is this maybe like Mayorga Vargas? You know, not that people were talking about that fight for years. It didn't have that element, but a similar level of star power at a similar point in their careers, maybe when that fight happened. That's about the best I can come up with. Um, if a listener can think of a, a better parallel, please uh, send her on in. But uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'll watch this fight. That's the, that's the short answer. I'm, I'm still kind of interested. Um, this is definitely guilty pleasure fight, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's it's I mean, look, the ultimate guilty pleasure fight that I think we've brought up a time or two, or at least I brought up a time or two, is Amir Khan versus Victor Ortiz. Uh, and this this is this is half of that uh, formula yes, there. So yeah. um, another news item to discuss a very interesting and scary one from Mark Kriegel at ESPN, who reported on Saturday that doctors told Teofimo Lopez he was lucky to be alive following his losing effort against George Cambosos after he was found to have fought with, quote, air in his chest. Kieran, can you fill the listeners in on the details of this story and any idea if it goes some way to explaining Lopez's subpar performance against Cambosos? 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And like you said, a scary story. So uh, according to Kriegel, apparently Lopez began experiencing shortness of breath and, and swelling in his neck on Friday before the weigh-in. Uh, and he thought it was just asthma symptoms because, you know, he's been dealing with asthma his whole life. But apparently the symptoms worsened considerably after he began rehydrating following the weigh-in. Lopez didn't want to say anything uh, to anyone outside his team because he was understandably worried that the fight was going to be cancelled. Uh, and after pre eight previous cancellations, he obviously didn't want to go through that again. But after the fight, he's taken to hospital for, for you know precautionary checks. And there a CAT scan found, quote, extensive air in his neck cavity. But he was sitting there in the ER feeling a bit ignored and so checked himself out against doctor's advice. He wanted to go home. He wanted to go and see his, his new baby. Uh, but fortunately, his manager, very concerned that he checked out of hospital, contacted a, a prominent ENT who looked at his scan, actually intercepted Lopez at his hotel and said, look, I get that you want to go home. You can't fly. Um, so they're the best that they came up with uh, for an explanation for all of this extra air in, in, in his, in his uh, uh, cavity there was that he likely had a tear in his esophagus. Um, and that ENT that um, Lopez's manager contacted, uh, Dr. Linda Dahl, said he could have died for sure. How he breathed, I can't even explain to you. And uh, Kriegel also quotes Dr. Peter Constantino, executive director of the New York Head and Neck Institute, as saying he's lucky he's not dead. I mean, really lucky. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So to put it very mildly, it is hard to believe that something that serious didn't impact Lopez's performance. Combine it with the fact that whatever reason he's having apparently some kind of financial issues, so he didn't hire his usual strength and conditioning coaches or the services of Joey Gamash in the corner, um, ended up, you know, just with his father and his questionable advice in in the corner, plus the stress of having a new baby, plus recovering from having COVID. It's honestly extraordinarily impressive he performed as well as he did um as we mentioned last week when we were talking about this fight uh fighters are humans they go into fights with stresses and strains and aches and pains but even by those standards this sounds like it was remarkably serious um apparently the kind of thing that you just wouldn't be able to detect with a standard pre-fight exam or even just by listening to uh his, his lopez's chest with a stethoscope like you needed a scan to, to see what was going on here uh lopez sounds like i'm sure he didn't feel a very fortunate man right after uh he heard the result of that fight but he was a fortunate man by the sounds of it and between one thing and another i rather suspect teofimo lopez is ready to draw a line under 2021 yeah yeah uh, crazy crazy stuff and uh, good reporting there by mark kriegel very good reporting yes uh one more news item to touch on uh which is terribly sad um, Eric Morales announced on Wednesday on social media that his son, Fernando, had died at the age of just 23. Uh, there are no further details uh, and there's really nothing else to say except that we send our very deepest condolences and RIP Fernando. Definitely condolences to the whole Morales family. It's just so sad and awful. Um, tough to transition from that into anything yes. else, uh, but it is time to wrap up the podcast with the reveal of your next top five assignment. And you might think you know what I'm going to do this week because we got an excellent suggestion over Twitter from a listener, John Cleary, uh, but I'm not assigning that to you this week. I'm okay. going to save it. Now, you might assign it to me in two weeks or maybe I'll assign it to you in four weeks, but I want to go a different direction right now. It is December. 
it is the start of year-end awards season. And by the time all those December 11th fights, Donaire, Lomachenko, etc., are over, and they will be when you finalize next week's top five list, there won't be many potentially awards-impacting fights left on the schedule. So we spoke after Canelo Plant about Fighter of the Year and how Canelo is the clear frontrunner despite not defeating any A-listers this year, but rather through volume, scoring three KOs, two of them against very good B-listers. I'm going to introduce a new year-end award category that isn't really a category anywhere. Nobody gives out this award, but here it is. Performance of the year, given to a single fighter for a single fight. Uh, So, for example, in 1997, my first year on the boxing beat, the fighter of the year was a debate between Evander Holyfield and Oscar De La Hoya. Roy Jones wasn't in the conversation at all because he went one-on-one that year with a disqualification loss to Montel Griffin. But maybe if there was a performance of the year award... His KO won over Griffin in the rematch could have been the performance of the year. Or, or maybe it was Lennox Lewis against Andrew Galata or Vince Phillips against Costa Zoo. Um, it's probably not anything Oscar did, uh, but he fought five times in 1997, so he was arguably the fighter of the year. So, okay, enough setup. The year 2021 is close enough to complete. I want you to rank the top five single fight performances of 2021 it'll provide a, a nice lead-in to our awards podcast coming a couple of weeks later that definitely works yeah and there's going to be plenty to choose some it's actually for all that we had that period where we were bemoaning this the state of the sport and things getting made or not getting made it's actually been a pretty cracking year uh with some really good in-ring performances so this will be fun this will provide an opportunity to go back and and actually, in the process, do some prep work for yes. our <laughs> year-end award, as I think about uh, the fights that we've talked about and the fights that we've watched and the performances that have really impressed us. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a two birds, one stone situation. And it's sort of uh, easy in the sense that you just have to look back over one year's worth of your, your notes and podcast right. prep and all that. But it's tough in the sense that I think it's going to be really hard to rank the top five. I think you're going to be challenged to figure out what makes the cut and what order to put them in. Excellent. All right. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to look back on Donair Gabayo and to preview as well the Jake Paul, Tommy Fury pay-per-view. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>